A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 11. The Sorting Hat's New Song. Harry did not want to tell the others that he and Luna were having the same hallucination, if that was what it was, So he said nothing more about the horses as he sat down inside the carriage and slammed the door behind him. Nevertheless, he could not help watching the silhouettes of the horses moving beyond the window. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, can we start with a huge round of applause? Round of applause for the 607 patrons supporting Harry Potter and the Sacred Text on Patreon. That is incredible. We were so worried earlier this autumn because Panoply is shutting down or it's changing its business significantly and all the podcasts are floating off into the open ocean. And so who came to the rescue in boats from every corner of the seas? Our amazing listeners. And in fact, we are so grateful for all of you that if we just get a little bit more per month on our Patreon, we think that we are going to be able to skip our crowdfunder this year. We need about $4,500 a month in order to justify skipping our crowdfunder for next year. So if you usually make a crowdfunder contribution but instead want to be one of our patrons, we would really appreciate it. And we're so grateful to all of you who've already supported us. Help us reach 1,000 supporters on Patreon because then we can say grazie mille. Which means, which means thanks a thousand, which usually it means like thanks a million, thanks a thousand. But we could be saying grazie, comma, mille, like thanks a thousand. That is poetry, Vanessa. <laughs> Vanessa, you've just come back from the Little Women pilgrimage 
And everyone seemed to be raving slash like on cloud nine. Yes, it was a magical experience. I issued one complaint, which was to the trees of Concord. (laughs) They were a little too green and yellow for my taste. I was hoping for more pops of red. Mm. Luckily, you'll be returning to some forested woodlands in the future. Yes. So we are very excited to announce that just a few weeks ago, we launched registration for our Jane Eyre pilgrimage. And we are going to be going to the West Yorkshire Moors on June 2nd through June 8th. If you've never seen pictures of the Yorkshire Moors, it is worth just Googling some images right now. People often think that England is just kind of like London and the southeast. And the Yorkshire Moors are up north and just stunningly beautiful. Well, I'm so excited. And the nerdiest thing that I'm like so, so excited about that I started crying when I heard about was that we will be having our sacred reading practice time every day in the classroom in which Charlotte Bronte used to teach. What? It is like nerd heaven. So if you want to join the Jane Eyre pilgrimage, go to readingandwalkingwith.com and you'll find all the information on the website. We really hope to see some of you there. So Casper, when I was doing my clinical pastoral education in the hospital, I had different appointments on different days of the week. So there was one day a week when I was in an ALS clinic, two days a week I was in the emergency department, and then sort of my light rotation was that two days a week I was on the orthopedic floor. And certainly there were days in which working in orthopedics was still intense. Because orthopedics is about bones, we had somebody who was like the victim of a shooting and was there because his femur was broken. But for the most part, these were sort of lower stakes days than the chaplaincy visits that I was doing in the other contexts. And so this day, I went to the rounds meeting in the morning with the nurses and the doctors where you go over every patient in the department. And one of the nurses said to me, like, oh, Chaplain Vanessa, there's a patient who would like to speak with you today. And I was like, great. So she gave me the name and the room number. And then I went to the chart system and I logged in and I looked up the patient. And across the top in like big highlighted letters is this patient is a deaf mute. And like instantaneously washed over me was a sense of absolute dread. I was like, oh, this is something I will be bad at. And I can't even tell you how well I procrastinated that day. I visited every other patient in the orthopedic department. I was so nervous about how to be a chaplain for somebody who wouldn't be able to hear me and somebody who didn't speak. I completely dreaded walking into this room. So eventually I did. And I found exactly what you would expect to have found, which was a lovely person who was sad about slightly less mobility in her life and just wanted a presence to be there with her. And I held her hand for a little bit. I sat there. It was awkward because the entire time I didn't know what to do. But it was also beautiful. This was just somebody who was lonely and wanted company for a short period of time. And in thinking about what it was I dreaded, I didn't think anything bad was going to happen in this room. I was scared about my own inability to handle the situation. And so I'm wondering why it is that sometimes we're anxious about something but not dreading it or When we're excited about a challenge and when it is that we are going to do everything we can to avoid that challenge. I'm interested about 
what the circumstances are out in the world and within ourselves that cause dread versus other forms of anticipation. This is so interesting. I hadn't thought about the answer I'm going to share with you until literally you asked this question. And I think it has something to do about certainty of suffering because we can be anxious about things where we like, we just don't know. The stakes are very high. It could go either way, but we're worried it's going to go wrong. But dread is more like, I know I'm going to suffer. Like, I can't do anything to escape this thing that's coming and I know it's going to be bad. And so you knew that you weren't going to learn American Sign Language in the few hours that you had between needing to make this visit and being appointed the task. And so, like, I can imagine just the certainty of feeling inadequate and feeling like you're failing. Ugh, there's nothing worse than that feeling. So Right. I was going to have to go in and do a bad job. Right. And, ugh. and like, not serve this person the way that she deserved to be served. Right. Right. Vanessa, I know you were dreading that hospital visit, but there's no need to dread what comes next because you know how to do a 30-second recap. Yeah, I do. That was such a generous way to frame this 30-second recap. <laughs> Usually it's like bashing. Are you ready to recap? Ready to recap. That's <laughs> how they say it in Italian. Recap. <laughs> recap mille. Recap mille. <laughs> no, recap 30. <laughs> I don't know how to say 30. On your mark, get set. Go. So Harry's like, okay, whatever. No one else can see these things, but they are so real. Where is Hagrid? Where's Hagrid? Where's Hagrid? He's not at the table. Oh my God. But who's there? It's someone who looks like a cat toad thing. It's, um, um, oh God, her name, Umbridge. And then um, the hat sings a song and it's like, this is the history. And they were friends and they were not friends. And now is danger and you must all stay together. And then um, Dumbledore introduces people. And then Umbridge is like, Ahem, I'd like to make a speech. And then everyone, McGonagall's giving her like death stares. And then Harry um, has a fight with Seamus and Mimble this Mimbletonia is the password. That was amazing. Also, you kept turning the pages of your book as if it was telling you things. I wasn't looking at it. you weren't looking at it. It was just like, you know, you're holding on to something to make you feel better. Yeah. Uh, this book is that for me. All right, Vanessa, may I have the timing machine? <laughs> the countdown starts. And now. Luna says that Hagrid isn't a good teacher and she's going to be glad if he's not there. And Hermione is like, true. And Ginny is like, not true. Amazing. Okay. And then the sorting hat gives all of these warnings. And Dumbledore says, tuck in and just start eating. And Ron is just hungry all the time. It is hard to be wrong. And then it turns out that what is happening, Umbridge makes this speech that nobody understands except Hermione. And Hermione is like, that was actually incredibly threatening. We should all be worried. And then there's a fight upstairs. And it turns out that like a lot of people don't believe Harry. And it just occurs to him. For some reason, although like no one is fatally wounded or anything in this chapter, it really made me feel the feelings. Yeah, no, 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 no. It is an emotionally high stakes chapter. Well, let's dig into it. Yes, let's. So, Casper, I see the theme of dread in this very first sentence. Ooh. I agree with you that dread is when you know that there is unavoidable suffering hap- going to happen. Like, I dread flights. Right, or you think you know. Right. And so the opening sentence of this chapter is, as you beautifully read to us, that Harry didn't want to tell the others that he and Luna were having the same hallucination. And Harry has obviously gone through some sort of change that he can now see this, but he wants to stay the same as Ron, Hermione, and Ginny for as long as possible. He is dreading the fact that he has now somehow gone through a transition that he doesn't quite understand what it is, but that separates him from his friends, and he is dreading acknowledging that. Am I reading too much into it? No, I think you're exactly right. Because 
what it would mean to be one of those people is to be more misunderstood, to not be believed again, right? Like all these things he's already experienced are going to be even worse if he starts saying, yeah, now I'm seeing these winged black horses that no one else can see. So let me ask you a question, though, because something in the second half of this sentence is this. So he said nothing more about the horses. And I think this is something about dread as well, is that we don't talk about it. We don't want to bring it up. We keep it to ourselves. There's something about isolation in dread. Does that make sense? Yeah. The other thing is the unknownness of it, right? Mm. I always dread seeing my aunt, not because she is always unpleasant. In fact, she's only unpleasant like 30% of the time. But it's that unknownness of like, will she be unpleasant this time? And how awful will she be? And the fact that it could be like from zero to a million is what makes it uncomfortable. But right, like there's nothing to talk about ahead of time. You don't know what it is yet. I feel like dread is about certainty in some way, right? The thing that is certain whenever I see my aunt is that I'm going to be scared the whole time. Oh, so it's as much about the certainty of your state as it is about what's actually going to happen. Right. Ooh, that's good. I know before I see her that the whole time I'm going to be scared. I have this in a much smaller way, but like every time I enter the United States and have to see the border guard, right? Like I know that is going to happen before I enter the country. And like I don't know whether this person's going to be really like tough and mean and make me feel like I've done something wrong even if I haven't. But I know I'm going to feel something, and I'm dreading that already, even as I board the plane. It's, I think, the same thing that, like, you hear insomniacs talk about, Mm. right? They can sleep a lot of nights sometimes, but the dreading getting into bed because you don't know whether or not tonight is a night that you're going to be able to sleep. And then dread becomes its own disease. Now I don't just dread seeing my aunt. I dread the weeks of dread ahead of time, right? So, And it's all the sadder because in this moment, Harry is returning to Hogwarts, something he's longed for all summer, something that's been at risk with the trial. And this should be this moment of happiness and feeling at home. And in fact, the whole chapter is filled with this sense of underlying dread. The things that should be safe are not. You know, the relationships with like the one with Seamus should be intact, but it isn't. Everything has shifted. And that's really embodied in the song of the hat, right? Every year the hat sings a song about Gryffindor is for the brave and Hufflepuff is for the lovely and cuddly. So here are some of the lines towards the end of the new song that the hat sings. I sought you into houses because that is what I'm for. But this year, I'll go further. Listen closely to my song. Though condemned I am to split you, still I worry that it's wrong. Though I must fulfill my duty and must quarter every year, still I wonder whether sorting may not bring the end I fear. Oh, no, the perils, read the signs, the warning history shows, for our Hogwarts is in danger from external deadly foes, and we must unite inside her or will crumble from within. I have told you, I have warned you, Let the sorting now begin. So there's this sense that the hat is saying, like, I see the future and it's scary. And we learn later that from the ghost, nearly headless Nick, that the hat has done this before, that it has offered warnings in times of crisis. So the hat knows of which it speaks. And so I think the hat is feeling that sense of dread. Dread isn't an equally shared emotion, right? Some people who've had certain experiences are able to more quickly recognize dangerous warning signs and will feel that sense of dread. And I think that's what the hat is feeling. But like a lot of people in this room are just kind of sailing merrily along anyway. It's so interesting that the hat, which is sort of considered to be this fairly all-knowing being, Mm. has said there are outside forces who are going to attack us. 
and that people aren't like, oh, I guess Harry was right. Why doesn't somebody make meaning of this thing that just happened? Something out of the norm happened in front of a room full of children. You do a little bit of, like, teachable moment there, right? No. We just let out-of-the-norm announcements happen and say nothing. Wow, that's a really great point. I mean, in some ways, the hat is wrong, right? Because external deadly foes have become internal deadly foes as Umbridge enters the building. But that's a really interesting point. And I wonder whether this is Dumbledore trying to maintain the trust in neutral institutions or neutral kind of umpire figures in a game. But that's a real choice. And perhaps he's made the wrong one here. There's a real opportunity to use this and say, like, you should believe me. Because we know from the stares that Harry's getting and obviously from Seamus's mom and Seamus himself that plenty of the students in this hall do not believe Harry who are in Gryffindor and Ravenclaw. It's not just the Slytherins. So here's another thing that I think would be interesting. Why doesn't the hat sort everybody into the same house? Like this year, like yeah. to, as a statement. Yeah, be like Hufflepuff. Or create a new house, a unity house. Yeah, I mean, we obviously don't know how much freedom the hat has, and the hat certainly feels as though it has to quarter them, which I wonder if the hat has some algorithm where it has to sort of evenly distribute the students. Yeah, what if one year you get like a a heavy Hufflepuff year? I mean, that sounds like a great year. (laughs) Probably eat a lot of Oreos. So good. I mean, I have no idea. It's like very confusing how the sorting hat works because it reads the mind and the intentions of everybody and then simultaneously doesn't know necessarily who's coming next that we know of. So I don't know how it actually quarters everyone. This is just another sign that the hat does not have any special powers and is just a random generator. It's just like Slytherin, whatever, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw. (laughs) Ravenclaw again, that's what happens. We know that that's not true. I know. The hat can read inside Harry's head and hears him say, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. Do you think the hat has been dreading this moment all year? Yes. I think that the hat, 364 days a year, the hat sits in Dumbledore's office and hears everything that's going on, which is how the hat knows that there are external foes out there, right? right? And yeah, this is the one day a year where the hat really has to work. It doesn't agree with its purpose. It's so sad. I wish that the hat could say, do you know what, guys? I just want to be a witch's hat now. I just want to be for fashion. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place. So you need to find a new home. If you're like me, 
you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Vanessa, the other place where dread feels really clear is Hermione's reaction to Umbridge's speech. And what Umbridge is saying is kind of hidden in formal office speak, vision language and culture change and things like that. And Hermione's like, I know what this is. This is the ministry interfering. And I'm worried about what that means because it can only mean bad things, right? Harry's just had this very intense experience at the ministry where procedures were completely changed. Here's Umbridge interrupting Dumbledore in a way that has never happened before, clearly, by the other staff's reactions. So Hermione's right to feel this dread But do you think it's dread? Yeah. Here's an argument for why I think it's something a little bit different than dread. I also think that if you've done a ritual a certain way every year, any change to that is going to upset you. Right. right? We hate change. We just hate change. Well, change is hard. Change is hard. Yes. And so Hermione could just be reacting to like, nobody talks except Dumbledore every year. And like, Hagrid's not here. And this is chaos and it makes me uncomfortable. And that's different than dread, right? Something being slightly different than usual. I remember that feeling, you know, I've lived far away from home for half my life now. It's literally been half my life. My family is now allowed to make changes without checking with me. (laughs) But I went home once and my parents had reupholstered the couch. And I was like, I didn't know this happened. I don't understand why you thought this was okay to do without checking with me. Yes, it looks better. The old couch was disgusting and it needed to be recovered. But I'm very mad. (laughs) Right? Well, and especially because in this situation, don't at me. But there are some things that Umbridge says, which actually I agree with, right? Like a new era of openness, effectiveness, and accountability. Who's not for that? And especially all the complaints we've had about the school's policies, some accountability would not actually be amiss. And so often when we have that instinctual reaction against something, whether it's a couch or, you know, new teachers, we might miss the good things that could be there. But I do wonder if it is dread what Hermione feels. You know what it most reminds me of is Mrs. Weasley's attempt to fight the Bogart and just see all of the members of the Weasley family dead on the floor in some way. Hermione knows this spells danger not only for her, but for the people she loves. And I think that kind of sense of existential dread about life and death and about things that you can't do anything about, that's what it seems to be for Hermione. Like, that this is bigger than her, that she can't control it, and that no one else is paying attention. That's what makes it feel like dread to me. And here's another thing that I'm now seeing your point of view on this. She can't go to the library to solve this. (gasps) It's not a specific enough problem, and it's now reminding me of my story, where I was like, there wasn't somebody who knew sign language accessible to me. And so the dread was like, this is an issue, and I'm not going to be able to address it. And Hermione is like, I know something is wrong here, but research is not going to solve it. 
This is exactly how I felt when I was a climate activist, that I didn't have the power to make a difference on the scale that was clearly needed, as evidenced by the science. And I think that the dread maybe points to an, a, a disconnect between what we are capable of and the change that needs to happen. And this is the thing that I try and hold on to, especially in times when you feel that kind of sense of dread or powerlessness, is that we actually feel better once we're doing something. The dread only grows when we don't act. Like, yes, it was super awkward when you walked into that room as a chaplain and you knew you were inadequate, but you felt better being in the room than you did before you went into the room, right? Certainly not worse, right? Yeah, and I love that, you know, I was thinking about what are the synonyms for dread when I was trying to think through this chapter. And it was things like anxiety. But I think you're right that dread is actually really about feeling powerless. Mm. The things that we dread, right, pain while dying, Mm. missing people, they are these very existential things that we just feel completely powerless to resist or fight against. And so I think that thinking about dread as a feeling of powerlessness and giving into that powerlessness rather than trying to resist it is the best way I can think of to mitigate dread. This makes me think of Fudge. You know, Fudge rationally knows that Voldemort is back, right? All these people in his life who are telling him, he he knows ultimately they're right. He just feels powerless to do anything about it. The fear of what it would mean to change is too overwhelming for him. And so he's putting his head in the sand and he's ignoring the problem, making it worse. And I, I think that's what dread does. It's like a prison that often ends up making the problem worse because we're too afraid to face what's coming. Which makes me appreciate Hermione all the more because she is doing the only thing she can do, which is name it. Exactly. There's one small point which did really feel like the embodiment of dread, which is we meet a little boy called Ewan who's just like terrified of being sorted. And it reminds Harry of that feeling of standing there in line following McGonagall's first year. And You know, we look back at that moment now with so much more understanding of why it means so much. I mean, Harry's entire school experience has been shaped by being a Gryffindor, also by having to battle Voldemort every year. But kind of seeing Ewan, who also gets sorted into Gryffindor, meet that moment, especially being the first one with that kind of existential dread is just, I don't know, it opened my heart again. And again, like, I am sorry to be beating this drum so hard right now, but failed pedagogy at Hogwarts moment, where the fate of your entire life is being determined for you on some basic level when you're 11, it is just an upsetting moment in which they are letting this hat that doesn't even want to do this thing anymore force children onto a certain path at a disturbingly young age. Yeah. Casper, it is time to transition away from our dear Lectio Divina toward the beautiful sacred imagination. My favorite. <laughs> that joke has to stop next season. <laughs> um, One more season. One more season. Okay. Um, so we're moving away from Lectio Divina toward sacred imagination in which you have picked a passage for us. And we are going to imagine ourselves into the story. We are going to imagine what these characters are thinking and seeing and smelling and touching and if their fabric is itchy. And the idea is that we can better empathize with the characters if we're doing that. And that if we practice doing that with characters, we can get better at doing it with one another. And so no pressure, but depending on which passage you pick, we will either be good at empathizing with others or we won't. 
<laughs> well, I think I've got a winner. Okay. So this is from towards the end of the chapter. Harry said nothing. He threw his wand down on his bedside table, pulled off his robes, stuffed them angrily into his trunk, and pulled on his pajamas. He was sick of it. Sick of being the person who is stared at and talked about all the time. If any of them knew, if any of them had the faintest idea what it felt like to be the one all these things had happened to. Mrs. Finnegan had no idea, the stupid woman, he thought savagely. He got into bed and made to pull the hangings closed around him. But before he could do so, Seamus said, Look, what did happen that night when, you know, when Cedric Diggory and all? Seamus sounded nervous and eager at the same time. Dean, who had been bending over his trunk trying to retrieve a slipper, went oddly still, and Harry knew he was listening hard. Who did you find yourself kind of living into in that passage, Vanessa? I mean, I was both Harry and Seamus. Mm. That feeling of anger and, like, no one understands, that is a feeling that I am not very proud to say that I recognize. When you, like, get a piece of criticism and you're like, you're not understanding me, you don't understand everything I have to do, I often feel that judgment even when nobody has offered a criticism. <laughs> like, if I haven't responded to someone's text in three days because I've been working 16-hour days, I imagine that they're mad at me and I'm like, you don't know how busy I am. But I also really feel for Seamus where you have a right to know something and you're also embarrassed to ask because there's a voyeuristic reason that you want to know it also. And this is quite a generous question from Seamus. I mean, we've had an awkward moment and a painful moment, but it's not an accusatory question. I think there's genuine curiosity here. He says, look, what did happen that night when, you know, with Cedric Diggory and all? Like, what happens is that Harry ends up polarizing the whole situation between either it's your mum or me. That's such a painful and unfair choice that Harry makes Seamus make. I was really finding myself to be Dean, you know, when you're like, in the room. I've often had this, like when I was a kid and I was at a friend's house and their parents were like shouting at the kid. And I was like, I'm here, but I'm really not here. But like your whole body stiffens and I can just feel Dean just being like, this is an important moment. Like, what is he going to say? Can you read me one more time? It says that Seamus asks the question, but what are the adjectives that describe it? He got into bed and made to pull the hangings closed around him. But before he could do so, Seamus said, look, What did happen that night when, you know, when Cedric Diggory and all, Seamus sounded nervous and eager? The eager is what annoys me. Yeah. As I've talked about on the podcast before, a good friend of mine died when I was in high school. And and it was like the people who were crying too hard who didn't know her. Mm. And they were probably having all sorts of like reasonable emotional responses. But if you didn't know her and were crying harder than I was, or if you wanted to know, like, exactly how she died and so you asked me, I was like, what does it matter? She's dead. Hundreds of people came to her funeral, and it drove me nuts. I was like, why are you all here? You're just here to watch this. And they probably weren't, right? They were probably there to pay their respects. But it felt like spectacle. But here's the thing. It was probably both, right? They were there to pay their respects and... They were there because they wanted to see what it was like, what would happen. Maybe it's the first funeral for a lot of these kids, right? That's the thing that's always so hard about these situations is that I genuinely believe Seamus 
cares about Harry. I genuinely believe that he's curious and wants to know the truth. And like, this is kind of exciting and also a little scandalous. And he gets to share a room with Harry and would be the person who can share the story, right? Like, all of that can be true at the same time. And like, I definitely do not blame Harry for this reaction because Lord knows I would have the same. But this is just the cruelty of what it means to be human is that these things can live at the same time. Yeah. The other thing that I was thinking about, and like not in the sexy way, like what's he wearing under those robes? But like, I was like, oh my God, is he feeling vulnerable and attacked by someone and like has to shed his clothes in front of them? Mm. How awful it is to not feel when like your home is a respite. And we've all had moments in which we're fighting with our roommates or the heat isn't working or for whatever reason our home isn't the safe, warm place that it should be. I just feel so bad for Harry that he, like, has to undress in this moment when his credibility is being questioned. Yeah, like, his physical nakedness reflects the kind of naked vulnerability of the position that he's in socially. And to feel in an intimate place where you would want to be safe, like, that's under threat as well. That's That's such a painful moment. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our voicemail this week is from Natasha Livingston. Hey Vanessa and Casper, my name is Natasha and I'm from Scotland. I absolutely adore your podcast and I wanted to bless someone. I'm dyslexic and for anyone who doesn't know that's a learning difficulty. Being a teenager that's one of the most difficult things I have to tell anyone. 
I wanted to bless Neville for this. He reminds me of my dyslexia to a great deal. He gets flustered in Snape's potions class. The teacher stresses him out and everyone's going faster than him and he gets overwhelmed and it, that reminds me of me in class. In Remus's Defence Against the Dark Arts class, you know, he's scared to be the first one to do anything. He doesn't want to be part of the demonstration or the presentation of the Bogar. He's worried that he's going to mess it up. And that's a big worry for me and I worry and I don't want to be the person who gets up first or talks and I wanted to bless him for the journey that he takes because he starts off as someone who's worried about being a squip and worried about his ability to do anything and he continues to worry about this and continues to stress about this, about not being good enough. And that's always been a big worry of mine, not being good enough. You know, I'm dyslexic, so learning takes a long time for me. So I never feel like I'm good enough in a class. And then he goes from that to being confident in his abilities, for being confident in herbology and that he's good at things. He may not be good at everything, but he's good at things. And to take that journey, to take that leap is something I'm still struggling with. And to see Neville do it gives me hope I can do it myself. Because I'm never going to be a Hermione. I'm never going to be the top of my class or be very smart at everything. I'm never going to be able to do lots of things at once and be extraordinarily good at them. But I have hope that I could be a Neville and be confident, at the very least, in my abilities. Natasha, none of us are going to be Hermione. And I love that you are just living into that. And the other thing I will say is I don't know why there is this pressure for us to be everything. We don't need to be everything or good at everything or everything to one person. We just need to be ourselves and good at the things we're good at and struggle with the things that we struggle at. And so, yeah, Neville is good at a great many things and Hermione is annoyingly perfect. And What I love about this chapter is that his knowledge, which is so often maligned or kind of pushed aside, ends up being really useful. He knows the password to the Gryffindor common room when Harry doesn't. And so, Natasha, I hope you and everyone listening will remember that the things that we do know can turn up to be very, very useful just when you need it most. Even if the thing that you know most in the world is Harry Potter. Especially when the thing is Harry Potter. It's time for us to bless someone from the chapter, Vanessa, and... Who are you going to bless? I am going to bless Seamus's mother. She is worried about her kid. Yeah. It's like obviously easy to judge her. But I just can't imagine loving my child and being scared that the school that I send him to 10 months of the year is being led by someone who is disagreeing with the newspaper and the Ministry of Magic. And like, I just really feel for her. And I'm, like, conscious of the fact that I keep empathizing with people who don't believe Harry. And I think I have to do a little self-investigating as to why I feel so much sympathy for that. Because I'm somebody who believes people when they tell me things. I take people at their word. But she is a woman who is trying to protect her son. And so I just want to offer a blessing to people who come to the wrong conclusions with the best of intentions. Because God knows I am in your company. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? I want to bless 
Neville's grandmother. We're on a similar journey here. At the very end of the chapter, Neville says this beautiful thing of like, well, I believe Harry. And it's this, this kind of this final moment. And it's so clearly influenced by his grandmother. His grandmother has chosen to cancel her subscription to the Daily Prophet. What I love about this is that she has put her beliefs into action, that she has said, I think Voldemort is back. I know what it's done to my family. If someone says that he's back, I believe him. But it's not just that voyeuristic response that we saw in Seamus to some extent. She's really putting her money where her mouth is. And she's saying, I'm not going to buy this newspaper when it's reporting lies. And so for anyone who's kind of taking that next step of saying, I disagree with this and I'm going to do something about it. It's a hundred tiny actions like that that come together. And someone in the subscription office is going to be like, hey, we're taking a hit because we're not doing our job anymore. And who knows, they might take that up the chain. So we've laughed a little bit at Neville's grandmother. And I think we see her fierce power here. And her like perpetual grief. Yeah, yeah, that that has not gone away and never will. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we have started our Patreon. Please go support us there. Help us get to Grazieing a Mille. <laughs> you can leave us a review on iTunes or send us a voicemail. We'll be glad to hear it. Next week, we'll read Chapter 12, Professor Umbridge, through the theme of pride. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Casper Turkheil, and the fabulous Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. We're part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week's voicemail is thanks to Natasha Livingston. We'd like to thank, as always, Julia Argy, Bridget Goggin, Danny Egan, and Stephanie Paulsell. We'll talk to you next week. And moms and grandmas everywhere. Uh, Recapa pizza. Recapa cappuccino. (laughs) Recappuccino. That's genuinely funny. (laughs) (laughs) And that is what Patreon supports. Yes. Support our Patreon. (laughs) Recap Patreon. (laughs) Recap Patreon. eh?